0: Hi, James. Thanks for joining me on the Now of Work podcast.
1: Absolutely, Jess. Thank you for having me.
0: I honestly, I'm kind of giddy right now that I'm talking to James McQuivy from Forrester. And for those of you that are watching, that are, I'm sorry, are listening, we, James and I can see each other right now. Your background, you have this beautiful Forrester branded background behind you, Thank bold you. at work. Yep. And even your other wall, did you paint your wall or green?
1: Oh, no, actually, I, I should, though, it'd be totally on brand. No, it's actually slightly blue, but I guess the lighting doesn't quite uh, get it.
0: Yes. Well, you look completely on brand. I'm a fan of the guitar as well. In your background, you told me you have five songs in your back pocket. That's more than I have.
1: (laughs) Uh, You know, in case someone ever calls me out and says, I bet that's just a prop. I can actually pull it out and say, here you go. Here's song number one.
0: (laughs) Well, we have a consultant, a rather brilliant consultant. You might know Harry West who has who ha- who also has guitars in his backdrop and claims to play none of them. I don't oh. know if I believe him, actually. He might just be, you know, eliminating the pressure of playing there on the go. spot. That works.
1: Sure. So
0: James, will you share with everybody who's listening uh, who you are in the world of work and what you're doing at Forrester, which is some pretty incredible work, never more necessary?
1: Oh, absolutely necessary, isn't it? So uh, I actually have a long history at Forrester. I joined in 1998, believe it or not, I can actually say last century. And what I was doing for Forrester then was essentially applying my academic research for how do people approach change and I think of 1998 change was what's the internet am I going to shop online and so I helped Forrester build all of its consumer models and predictions about you know who was going to use that new iPod and later the iPhone and later the iPad and it wasn't just Apple but Apple seemed to be doing a lot at the time. And then as we got into this last decade we started to realize that the next big wave of change that was going to happen was in the way people experienced their work lives the same kinds of pressures of. hey there's this new thing, Uh, whether it's teams or zoom or whatever are people going to use it, and if they aren't. Why not? What would help them want to use it? I mean, it's the same question that Apple was asking in 2001, that Sony was asking me to model for them in 2001 when Apple came out with the iPod was, what about our MP3 players? How come nobody's buying those? You know, same kind of thing right now. What about this collaboration method? What about this way for people to do remote work? What about this way for people to engage automation and robotics? will people just say no or will they move forward so Forrester asked me would you mind after all these years of focusing on the consumer psychology apply your models to workforce and employee psychology and so I did about three years ago moved over and started replicating those models and I gotta tell you they work perfectly the, the same thing that makes someone say I'm never gonna bank online is the exact same internal impulse that as I'm never gonna work remote or let my employees work remote And so we just have to figure out what is it that's making them say that? How do we help them get over that hump? Not because we're trying to manipulate them into banking online or collaborating in a remote work situation, but because that's actually going to be better. It's going to be more efficient, more effective, so anyway, I came into this team about three years ago. I've been supporting it with my data and, and models. And then about in the last year, they said, you know, can you just run this team? Can you be the research director for our future of work team? Or I have a team of just six amazing analysts covering everything from, you know, the basics of employee listening to the details of human capital management software to wellness, to burnout, to, you know, you name it, our team is, is doing it. And like you say... We have had to uh, apply ourselves more energetically in these last two years, almost two years, uh, than we ever thought. But honestly, everything that we came into 2020 saying we need to convince people that this matters, the pandemic basically did it for us. And people came and said, "Okay, we get that it matters. Now what? So we've been scrambling to keep up.
0: Oh my gosh. What a fascinating time to be doing the kind of work that you're doing. Part of me feels like, oh my gosh, you have this crystal ball and I'm dying to ask you to look into the crystal ball for me, but it's not a crystal ball because that's making assumptions and guesswork and trying to look around corners. You're truth-telling. You're using research to tell facts, and maybe there's some predictive stuff there, but sure. it's based in factual trends and historical okay. analysis and that kind of thing. Uh, does anything surprise you? For, I'm just going to, does anything surprise you? Mm. Or is anything happening that is like, wow, I did not expect the talent market to respond this way? Or, or does it make sense?
1: Honestly, nothing is surprising in terms of what's happening. The only things that surprise me, at least right now, are the speed with which things do or do not happen. So the, the speed with which over the summer we went from, we could see a talent crunch to all of a sudden the monthly numbers from the government in the US were saying, yep, talent crunch. Uh, so we thought, oh, it'll unfold over four or five months, it turned out to be two. Those kinds of surprises seem to be coming in all the time. Some things happen faster than we're thinking, some things more slowly than we we're thinking. The vaccine mandate was one, of course, we couldn't see coming because uh, President Biden didn't telegraph that to us or send us a text message. But we, yeah. we, we did write about it back in May, and we said, there's this thing that might happen, it's a vaccine mandate push, and here are the ways to think about it as an organization. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, Biden later on in the year says, we're going to to do this and, you know, instead of us analyzing, oh, the legal issues or the what's going to happen in the courts, none of that. We just say, okay, as a business, when you're running your business and you're trying to get your people to the future of work, what are you going to do in response to this vaccine mandate? So, you know, we don't take sides on whose politics are better or worse. We simply say, you're trying to run a business, whether it's a thousand people or 10,000 or a hundred thousand people, and we have clients of every size which uh, approach is going to help you get those people to the future of that issue and every other issue you're now dealing with?
0: Oh, I, this is such a fun conversation, so many questions. You mentioned automation and robotics mm-hmm. and you touched on the consumerization of work. Do we, does the future of work require us to tell technology what we want to do and be next? Or does technology, is this is chicken and egg to me, or does technology say, here I am, now respond?
1: Hmm. I love the way you're thinking about it because you're really just thinking about it from the person, the the employee, the individual, how are they going to experience this stuff? Because it kind of doesn't matter how AI progresses or how it's all developed. Excuse me. (coughs) Sorry. (laughs) Swallowed something a little funny there. <laughs> um, it really doesn't matter how the technology behind the scenes develops from the perspective of the employee, just like you're portraying it. Are they, are they essentially going to be the, the bot master, the programmer of the future, uh, whether they need programming tools or not? That's a whole other conversation. Um, or are they going to sit there and say, oh, robot says do X, robot says do Y? And honestly, the answer is both. Uh, we have enough roles in the work world where the robot really can manage, the robot manager, where the robot says, now it's time to do this, now it's time to do that. And, and in some ways, I'm not just talking about you know, flipping burgers uh, according to a timetable that the robot says is appropriate. Um, it can be even making big financial decisions, investments where the algorithm spits out the recommendation and says, go with this vendor, use this tool. Uh, and it's not you know, it, it's not quite the robot telling you what to do, but it really is. It is the algorithm making the decision for you. I, I'm waiting for the day when a board of directors has a robot member of the board. I mean, if, if I were in AI as a, I would you know PR the heck out of that, and put a, a robot member on my board to, to process things algorithmically and say, this is what I recommend. Um, so that that is gonna happen. On the other hand, we are seeing a tremendous increase of people who are in a situation where they get to tell the machines what to think and what to do. And they get to check the homework of the robots and say, you know what, you included some bias in the way you process that information. So I'm gonna retrain you so that you don't have that bias. So I. It's exciting in many ways that we're going to have both. Both of them have pitfalls. Both of them could go awry. I mean, we have on the side of you know, telling robots what to do, that sounds really empowering as an employee. But really, you know, UPS went through this years ago. When UPS first started using their own routing software to tell drivers where to turn and where to go to avoid accidents and avoid traffic and all that, the their drivers went absolutely crazy. No, we're not gonna let a machine tell us what to do. Robots don't know the roads like I do and so on and so on. So UPS actually solved that problem by saying, all right, well, we'll pay you a bonus if you can get to the place faster and safer than the machine told you to go if you choose your own route. And almost nobody could beat it, not consistently. And so over time, the drivers started to realize, you know, what this is actually saving me a lot of hassle. I I could take all of that brain concern about routing this and trying to get ahead of that traffic or whatever, and just let the computer do that part and let me do the part I do, which is, you know, interfacing with the public, uh, getting the package in the right place and away with a smile, that kind of thing. So yes, I I guess the answer is yes, both of those outcomes are going to happen. Both of them can go awry. Uh, And that's part of what we have to prepare ourselves for, isn't it? A, A world in which More and more of our coworkers and managers are automated tools.
0: So fascinating. And and continuing on that thread, maybe even fast forwarding a little bit, I can't help but wonder if we get to a point where automation drives so much efficiency that we can produce goods and services in a fraction of the time it takes to produce let's say, deliverables or product right. today. And so the number of human beings it takes, let's even say machines, machines and human beings that it takes today to, to to put out the the output of the world, that is going to change. That's going to be drastically diminished. And then we have millions and millions of people who you know, the, the the people who love to dig their, dig their heels in on automation and robotics and AI, it's almost like we're, we're fighting, like we're preserving our, our, our right to labor. (laughs) Why, why would we want to preserve our right to labor when, when that might not require a human, it might be better accomplished by a machine. It, Clearly begs to be automated. So, what are it almost makes you reconsider the purpose of work? Is the purpose of work to automate and efficiently produce the minimum you know, goods and services and products that the world needs for consumption? I mean, 300 years ago, a farmer didn't say, I need to go labor from nine to five because that's why I exist. No, you produced food for your family, you made sure, like you labored to the extent that you needed to live, but our our whole notion of work has changed And, and now we're, it's like we're preserving our right to labor as human beings. Is that really the purpose of work?
1: Oh, it's such a great question. And on the one hand, I can follow that line of logic and say, You know, this is exactly right. We need to learn to think of and and many pundits over the years have predicted we're going to get to a world where we only need to work five or 10 hours a week or even if it's just 20 in order to have the same incredible lives that we do. I mean, the world is not perfect by any stretch, but statistically speaking, more people have more resources, more wellness, more opportunity for education and knowledge than has ever been the case in the history of the world. So you know, even the many things that we can still improve about our lives, we're in an amazing place. So if you could just say to everyone, hey, you only have to work 20 hours a week in order to still have the amazing life that we have, that would be a hard deal to pass up. Uh, the other side of that though, is that humans just aren't content to sit back and experience that spare time. They're gonna use it to do something else. And that's probably for many of them going to be to generate new work opportunities, new services, new solutions. So, A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Digital Disruption, and the whole purpose of digital disruption was to point out the fact that digital tools, unlike any prior type of tool innovation from the industrial revolution forward, information age, any whatever you want to call any of those things, the digital revolution or or the digital disruption, as I I described it, is an era where the tools themselves are so hyper-efficient that you can do far more with far less. So it sets up the condition that you're talking about where, hey, we could just only work 20 hours a week and uh, then we'd be content. The issue is it turns out that most people aren't happy with that. They, they they wanna say, well, now that I can do more with less, what more, more could I consider doing? And it's usually the innovation. It's not just scaling up what I do today. Instead of making you know X widgets a week, I wanna make X times five, which is, if you're a manufacturer, that's great, fine. But you're also going to say, what if I could make those widgets better? What if I could make them do more things? What if I could make them have an intuitive user experience? What if I could make them intelligent? You know, whatever the widgets are, I mean, I'm looking at things like, uh, like intelligent pets. I feel like smart pets is going to be one of those multi-billion-dollar markets once the technology just gets a little bit further ahead, uh, where people I mean, understand. In the U.S., uh, the pet market is about a sixty-billion-dollar market. Uh, it's it's hard to imagine. So. If, if you even got, you know, 10% of that spend on smart pets, and I'm not suggesting smart pets is the future for everybody, but let's just, let's just think about that is a huge advance on, you know, the difference between having a phone in your pocket or the difference of actually having a, a one pet, maybe now you can get a, a, an actual pet and a smart pet so that you can have the benefits of both. Uh, we don't have to make this a zero something where we're saying, okay. oh, a person used to do A and now they can't do A anymore because the robot does it. So now they have nothing to do. I, I don't know of of humans generally, and I you know I've been studying them for decades where on on mass they would be content with that.
0: I agree, but I love playing devil's advocate. and I think what we don't we fail to think about is the opportunity you just described. If we can automate and make more efficient production, assembly, computing, what we make possible is advancement in science, technology, medicine, the things that can actually help save the planet and maybe the human race, you know, like how exciting. And that's where, um, and that's where technology also becomes more exciting because it can assist, it can assist a lot of that and and advance that work so much faster. Um, I want to go back to, to work, The, the things that you study and, and it does seem to me that a lot of this is, we're still in this era where we're trying to consumerize work. Is that true? How would you describe sort of this era of work we're in? Clearly digital, but but what what is this this phase that we're in?
1: It's interesting what you would include under the term consumerization of work, because some people, it just means bring your own device to work. You know, IT lets you use your own phone, your own PC, because providing resources at the IT level is cost-intensive and kind of a hassle. And once you figure out uh, zero trust security management, you can do it on any device, right? And so, oh, okay, we've consumerized the work experience. But but it's not really just that. There's this whole other dimension, which we summarize under the heading of employee power. And employee power simply describes not empowered, not power the way that maybe we thought of in the Norma Ray days of unionization and so on, because unionization is at a, a, a very, very low point historically. And so you'd say, oh, well, where's employee power now? we say, well, actually it's manifesting all over the place. It's when employees send internal Slack messages criticizing a decision that the organization has made. That's a manifestation of employee power. Now it's a negative one. What about positive manifestations of employee power? And this is where I think the consumerization angle is crucial to factor in because why do they feel like their feedback should be considered? Why do they think that their opinion should be valued? Well, it's because as consumers, everywhere they go, they're being asked, how did we fly you today? We're Delta Airlines, do you still like us? They're, they're being said, did, you went to our bank today. What did you think? You were on our website, you bought from our, you bought from our store. We're, they're constantly being asked for their opinion and their input so that the world can be improved. Well, if you go to work and the people at work aren't bothering to ask your opinion, how in the world does that square with the experience you're having as a consumer everywhere else? And so, part of what we're telling people when we talk about employee power is, is one of those big factors, or, or uh, that that, in, that a company needs to think about in the future work. We're saying, no, no, no. It's not just about preventing protests out in front of your headquarters, uh, which of course you need to concern, concern <laughs> which of course you need to concern yourself with, too. But it's also about, well, if they have that energy. How do we how do we invite them to use that energy to actually improve the organization, to to actually say, you know, here's a policy that could be changed. Here is a way that we could improve the product. Here's a way that we could change the customer's outcome Uh, in a way that, honestly, when I entered the workforce in the early 90s, uh, you never had that that belief that your little voice in the organization was going to change anything. You know, marketing campaigns were set a year in advance, budgets were set every December by some people meeting in a room, and you never had that influence. Today, you really can. You you can send a, a, a Slack message, whatever, Teams message, a chat message internally that can hit the CEO, and the CEO can take it to the board that day and say, somebody said this, and I think this is the best idea I've heard in a while, and they can act on it. There are CEOs that do that. Now, not all of them do, but that's a way to take advantage of this consumerization. Let their consumer mindset flow. Let them say, I see a better way. And as a consumer of the workforce, I would like that better way to happen.
0: I love that. You, you tickled another thought um, when you were talking about Slack messages and exchanging information, feedback loops. The ability to personalize work, workforce experience, my experience of work, the value I'm able to deliver to work, uh, the feedback loops and, and sort of the pace of innovation, all of that can be accelerated and personalized, made more relevant to me. The more, you know, about me, of me, the more you query me, the more data imprint you take off of me. What are your thoughts on data? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I mean I I think China is fascinating there everything is public and what they're able to do with that is incredible are we really are we willing are we willing to sacrifice privacy for speed of innovation when it comes to personal data yeah this
1: is the billion, trillion dollar question, uh, especially when you bring up the comparison between the Chinese system and the US system. That's where it literally becomes trillions of dollars uh, hanging in the balance there. One of the things that uh, when we say that there are four big shocks that are going to hit the future of work or shape the future of work, one of them is employee power that we've talked about. Another one is this data deluge. The deluge of data that's coming down on companies, some of which they don't know what to do with, some of which they collect and then it sits there, some of which they misuse, you know, saying like, I see that you didn't log in until 9.11 or 9.12 or 9.15 in the morning and, and you logged out at four seventy or 4.17, wow, 4.70, that would be an interesting time. <laughs> um, and you logged out at, you know, 4.30 in the afternoon or whatever it is. If, if that was the way a company was choosing to use data about you, and there are companies that are doing that that's misuse of the data. Uh, that's policing people's behavior rather than encouraging and motivating outcomes. And so, you know, we spent a lot of time working with companies on how to think about that. But, but the bigger question, the bigger question of you have this data. What in the world are you going to do with it? The the truth is we don't even have to ask for more data than we already have, especially in a remote work situation. We have so much work about which tool sets people are using. You know, Companies have invested so much in their collaboration platforms. And if you ask uh, training companies that provide training or digital adoption management vendors that help you get the most out of your spend, whether it's on Salesforce or on Teams or whatever, they will tell you that uh, the average company, it's tiny fraction of the company that's using all of the features that the company is paid for like as in seven eight ten percent that are using all the features and most people are using just two or three basic features yeah the company's paid for it those tools are generating data like crazy But that data is not coming back and saying, hey, we've noticed the way you're using this tool could be improved. You could get more out of this, you know, just click here. Uh, That conversation has to happen. We have to show people that the data that they're already generating is going to help them be more productive and more engaged. As long as the data conversation is between employer and employee, we want to know everything about you and we don't want to be restricted in how we use it. Well, that's never going to work. But if it's, hey, we're using this information about you to make you more productive and more useful and more engaged and more satisfied at what you do, which is a huge predictor of long-time innovation or long-term innovation capacity and so on, all of that data, if you're not already showing people that you can use it, you can't begin to ask for more. You can't begin to say, can we also have this value? You know, look at China; they're going to get successful. We want to be like them. We're going to collect all. Now, use what you've got in a smart way, and then you can have an argument for whether or not you could ask for more.
0: I agree. I I think we're we're leaving a lot on the table when it comes to building intelligence into workforce experience, into workflows, into even culture drivers. Uh, you know, under we do know a lot about people. Um, and it's, it's disrespectful, you know, even the simple example, like an annual engagement survey, you shouldn't really have number one, once a year, really, you're going to ask me what my heart rate is once a year to know if I'm healthy overall, same idea. Uh, and you probably know a lot about whether my level of engagement or disengagement productivity, you know, alignment to values and purpose, my communication styles, Uh, who I look at organizational network analysis, who I'm most creative and innovative with, how I thrive, if I thrive. Like, please act like you know me. You know a lot about me. I think that's, that's a huge opportunity.
1: It's one of the things that, if you go back to the consumerization discussion, in the consumer model consumers feel often violated when they believe that their information is being used just to sell them more things you know advertising violates my, it's weird because people actually act on those you know targeted ads all the time because they're good. I mean, that's, that's way better to get a targeted ad that actually understands what you want as opposed to just random ads. But, but I understand people feel like you're using this, you're exploiting me and so on. Um, It's harder as a consumer oriented business to say, no, actually, this information helps us, you know, give you this extra value. We've saved you time. We've saved you money. We've saved you hassle, whatever in the workforce, in the workplace though, you can absolutely do that. You can absolutely say the data that we have has allowed us to improve this system, make this work, give you targeted recommend that personalization that you're talking about. We're so far from that yeah, with yeah. most of our vendors and most of our clients that we're talking they you know, they just need aggregate data to be useful first, uh, but to work towards real time you know, suggestions for how to work those kinds of suggestions, that's going to be a a huge breakthrough. I I remember uh, doing this work for our consumer-facing clients here at Forrester. Back when I was writing the book, Digital Disruption, we had all of this uh, conversation with clients about someday you're going to be able to target messages in real time. And everyone just sort of roll their eyes. So, well, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, eventually that's going to happen. They were still doing batch processing of emails every month or whatever. Um, well, now we're there. I mean, you, you do really, from a marketing perspective, you can construct real time, very intelligent responses. Uh, if you're a very sophisticated marketing technology company, you can do that. Well, employee experience shouldn't be too far behind. It is, but it shouldn't. We should be able to say, James, this is the email that you need to pay attention to right now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we know that you skipped over it and you mm-hmm. didn't read it. But we're looking at who's in it. We're looking at your prior responses to those people. You have to respond to this one today. So here's a slot on your calendar from 345 to 4. We're going to drop this in your calendar. That needs to happen. And honestly, in my life, that couldn't happen soon enough. Uh, But that's about a partnership between the data, the technology, and the organization with its employees.
0: Absolutely. I'll give you a very real example. My target cart has reminded me three times today that (laughs) I haven't checked out yet because I started a cart. I haven't completed the transaction. I need to, I just need to hit a button. And it's reminded me three times I haven't yet. Conversely, true story, today is our deadline for open enrollment. I haven't finished reviewing my selections. Nobody has reminded me that I'm halfway through that process and I haven't completed my transaction. That should be the same experience. It should absolutely be the same experience.
1: Uh, so uh, I love it. You're bringing up something that's very painful, I'm sure, to a lot of listeners because we just had to do open enrollment as well, and it's the same thing. They send a blanket email saying, "Just a reminder, it's due in a week," and you don't get the targeted message. It says, "Hey, click here to continue where you were before." It's a go back into the system, and of course, the systems don't integrate, so you have to click into a different system, authenticate there, I have to and authenticate all over work. again, <laughs> and then you have to look for the little notification and drop it down and be like, "Okay, pick up that process and." You know, yeah. Half of my team is like, where was that notification again? Which tool am I supposed to be in? So that that needs to be fixed. And that's an artificial yeah. intelligence layer. That's an AI layer that you could easily just stick on top of all of this. And it could automatically move you from place to place and reformat the information so that it, so that it works for you, that it seems reasonable to you. And we do have a lot of, uh, of vendors who are trying to make that cloud layer that would sit atop everybody else's systems. Uh, so we'll see how, let's just hope it happens, honestly, in the next year. Maybe is that too much to ask for?
0: What else in the next year? Like, there's so much I could ask you. What do you think, that, what do you think is going to be the topic of 2022? Well, the beyond lip point, service. Yeah, <laughs> well, well, the lip service. A
1: the early 2022 problem is going to be that companies are going to hit really, really hard by their back to work plans. No, we've been trying to write about it all year we originally said that because of the what you could easily see was coming that 60% of companies were going to end up in a default hybrid mode 10% would be in a complete remote mode leaving only 30% in the back to the office mode. I'm not even sure that 30% is going to hold when we originally predicted 60% people said oh that's crazy people want to be in the office and so on and so on and so on but. We're just seeing that every time a company tries to go back, it's not for health reasons. It's our data says this, the Bureau of Labor Statistics data, it all says the same thing. It's not for health reasons that people are saying they don't want to be back in the office. It's for productivity reasons. They're saying, this is working for me. Why are you asking me to go back? And I've got several clients in financial services. These seem to be the the self-sacrificing canary in the coal mine because they really those executives just feel like everyone has to be in the office, or otherwise we're not a financial services company. And I've had enough of these clients come to me and say, okay, the executive has said, here's the policy. Can you help me massage the policy so that my people don't leave? And the answer is no. I mean, your people, some of them are going to leave and you're gonna see your, if your normal quit rate was you know, 1% a month, uh, actually that would be high for some of these companies. Let's say it's a half percent a month. It's gonna double. You're gonna see twice as many people leave. and. If that happens three months in a row, your executive team is gonna wake up. We're already seeing this in, in service industries. We're seeing it in uh, consultancies. Their quit rates have, sh- have absolutely shot through the roof. And okay. so these companies are trying to do everything they can to say, no, 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 flexible employment. We want you to be here regardless of where you are. Um, and that means investing in employee experience. Only 48% of companies actually in the United States have a dedicated employee experience function of any kind. So, all right, we've got a lot of ground to cover in how to help un- the organization understand what the employees value from this hybrid or remote work and how to give it to them. I've got to tell you, one very, I'll um, just say, uh, f- f- <laughs> prophetic maybe organization early, early on that I was working with, uh, it's a health insurance company in uh, Canada, said, you know what? All we see is trouble on the horizon. We're going to 90% remote. And, and I said, you know, okay good for you if that's what works for you, but um, that seems sort of extreme at this early stage. You don't have data yet. And they said, you know what? Everybody in our company wants this. There's not a single person other than maybe some executives who want everyone to be back in the office. So we're just going to go and try it. And what's the worst thing that happens? We have to scale back and invite people back to the office a couple of days a week. Okay, we can do that. And I love that. First of all, that flexibility, that's Mm going to be crucial. Um, But the companies that are saying, no, here's our policy. January 1, it looks like this. You have to come. They're just going to absolutely get savaged.
0: I agree. I think that's one we could have predicted. That doesn't seem like re I sort of like really. Are you're surprised now that people are revolting in this way, or that they're that this is the number one question job seekers are asking you? They're asking for your policy, and they're asking specifically for a flexible policy. I think um, you know another. I, I'm going to. Pick at a scab here a little bit. I read a New York Times article last summer, this past summer in July, that reported only, New York Times reported only 3% of Black women wanted to return to an office. I think we're having a lot of culture conversations, a lot of environmental conversations around how we were really showing up for people. We ask people to show up a certain way. How are we showing up for people? And I think that has been a new conversation a very vulnerable conversation that a lot of organizations are having to i hope they're taking the time to have these conversations because now you still have to create employee experience Um, it happens whether you create it or not same with culture culture exists whether you create it and design it with intention or not and now we're digital, distributed, remote, we're staring at each other through screens, we still need to think about these things, but do we design them in a different way? Is this actually a bigger opportunity to be more intentional than it was before, or is it hairier than it was before? I actually
1: think more companies will end up going with the nearly full remote or full remote option, for this reason. And, and I didn't elaborate on this before, but the example I gave of the Canadian company that decided to go 90% remote, this was principally why they were looking across the organization and basically saying the people who for life situation, flexibility, family situation, health situation, caregiving situation, not just COVID related, but you know I've got elderly parents living with me or something like that. Those were the people who needed to continue working from home the most. And the leadership, hats off to them, said, if we create a system where the most vulnerable of our employees are the most out of sight, have the fewest chances to show that they're capable of being promoted, because of course, promotion means you got to come back in the office, suddenly we are creating this second class, you know, employee workforce, even within our own. So i was very impressed that they, that was the main reason they said, we're looking ahead. Not only does everyone want this, but if we end up creating this first and second class system, we're going to regret it. Now, I I think I actually know one other company also in Canada, interestingly enough, uh, other side of Canada, I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but they actually said, we're gonna go back to the office precisely for that reason. We wanna have an equal requirement of everyone to be present. We don't want anyone to be disadvantaged by working remotely. And I, I heard what they were saying. Uh, I then told them, you are gonna get bitten by this and let's just see where the dust settles and maybe we can pick up in a few months and, and talk about how you might alter your policy. Um, but, but really, this is one of those areas where maximum flexibility for everyone What sometimes we call anywhere work, we use the title anywhere work to describe any of these policies that have to account for some portion of people being remote. Um, But the the full blown anywhere work is everyone remote might end up being smarter, but this is to your point, you then have to intentionally replace all of the symbols, so you mentioned the banner behind me here uh, on my video screen, which our listeners can't see, but it's, it's got our logo on it, it's got our corporate colors, it's got our tagline on it. This is a way that Forrester reminds me and everyone that I'm talking to who we are. It's part of, you know, we're not in the office anymore. We can't see that incredible conference room or that music jam room that we have in the corner. You can't see it because we're not there anymore. So how do we continue to construct the culture in such a way that it engages employees, they feel motivated, they feel like they're part, we don't want people to feel so disengaged that they don't care who they're staring through their camera at. It could be that company or this company, I mean, then we've lost corporate culture. So. Yes, we need to be very thoughtful about this decision, and then we need to be deliberate and intentional about the cultural artifacts, norms, and uh, other modes that we invite the organization to participate in so that we don't lose those aspects of our culture.
0: I love it. I cannot believe I'm running out of time with you. I could talk to you all day. I have one burning question left. Are we going to fix pay issues in our lifetimes? (laughs)
1: Okay, so you asked, what are the big issues for 2022? First half of 2022 is remote work. Second half is wages, uh, salaries, compensation in general. Uh, We actually wrote a piece just a couple of weeks ago where we predicted one of the bullets starts with 100% 100% of companies will fail at compensation in 2022. And it's because no matter how you look at it, you're gonna have some piece of your population that you're not adequately uh, remunerating, uh, you know, addressing their needs, recognizing and rewarding, because that's an important part of motivating people, of course. And, and at the same time, the CFO is saying, oh, now that people are working remote, we can save some money on them, right? Because they live in a lower cost place. Can't we lower their salaries? So Facebook and Google are trying all of that right now. Meanwhile, Ford is saying, nope, we don't care where you live. Uh, if you're in this category of worker, we're going to pay you because you're valuable to us. So that battle of how to manage that kind of compensation, much less than the issues of differential compensation that are existing for, you know, give you an example, Verizon last uh, year as the pandemic was starting, they already had a plan to take Verizon Wireless, I should say, they already had a plan to take all of their customer support reps and make them home workers, um, or with the option to work in in other shared working spaces if home wasn't an environment where you could work. So they're trying to be very, very flexible. They had a plan to do that over like three years, and then the pandemic happened and boom, three weeks, they had to shift everyone to home and do all that. Boy, did they learn that they are, paying people the same thing, but for different levels of contribution, because some of them are like hiding in a closet while their kids are on classes, on Zoom, on the iPad. Um, I, I've talked personally to a person who manages a team of call center reps, not for Verizon, but a similar kind of situation, where basically he knows that occasionally the kids are gonna have to borrow mom's phone that she's using to do call center activity so that they can submit tests for school. you know. Okay, I get it. You're paying someone for the job, but the amount of effort they have to go through to get that job done is tremendously different. So whether you change the pay or not, I don't know, but you can certainly help with the environment. Like, can you provide tools? Can you provide resources? Can you provide broadband? Which of course, Verizon, that was one of the first things they realized is we've got to get everyone up to a certain level of broadband access. Even that though, look, let's face it. There are some places where you have employees who don't have access to broadband. You can be willing to pay it, but they don't have access to it. So suddenly you're like, well, I guess we can only employ people who live in certain zip codes. Oh no, now we've just redlined our potential workforce. So the unintentional disparities are going to be pretty large. So we're pretty confident in saying 100% of companies are gonna fail on at least one of these compensation issues next year. But the good news is everyone we're talking to has good intentions and they're gonna try to work through it. I just don't think they're gonna be able to solve it really quickly.
0: I truly believe. I'm so glad you said that. It sort of confirms a hunch, I guess. I truly believe that all of the talk that I'm already expecting, we're going to be, we're going to continue to obsess over experience. We are going to rightfully obsess over mental well-being, holistic self-care, all of that stuff. Rightfully so, but I truly believe we have such fundamental foundational issues to address that none of that stuff matters until you fix the fact that people want to be paid fairly, they want equal opportunity, they want to be kept safe, they need their employers to have their backs. And you need to like, we need to dumb that down and distill that to the most basic foundational needs that people have and remove some of those unintentional disparities and remove the over-reliance we have on other systems in order to participate in the work system. That's what happened to working moms with school age children. We have an over-reliance on childcare, elder care, school systems. And if those break, work breaks for, um, for millions of people. And so until we can kind of get some of the foundational cracks, Solidified. I feel like all of this wellness and experience and that's all fine and good, but don't ask me to bring my whole self to work until my paycheck is whole, truly.
1: Yeah, I, yes. The point being no wellness app that helps you breathe deeply five times a day is gonna compensate for not having a saner approach to what it means to be an employee in our organization. And honestly, look, let's face it, record profitability On public companies uh, in their annual reports coming into the end of this year record profitability Um, it's not like companies are saying oh we can't afford to help improve the lives of our employees they can they really can the stock market is going crazy precisely because there's just too much money there Uh, companies need to turn around and spend that money on improving all of this and I promise you the really amazing news is that it will improve the employee's experience and it will improve the customer's outcome. And guess what? It's going to be even more profitable. How about that? Isn't right. that? Right. The, world that we the virtuous live?
0: cycle is that you're, this isn't an expense you're sinking. It's going to pay you back. The dividends yes. are there.
1: 100%. Uh,
0: James, you're like my favorite conversation and I can't even say how long. I love it. Oh, this has
1: been great. Thank you uh- for having
0: me. Absolutely love it. We're going to have to have you back. We're going to have to do a mid-2022 review. We'll
1: do it. We'll do it. We'll see if the predictions came true.
0: I love it. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your afternoon.
1: Thank you. You too.